So last week in the series from Acts 17, we looked at verses 16 through 21. Paul came into the city of Athens, and the city was just full of idols. And he noticed this, it grieved him in his heart, and uh, he realized that these people in Athens, they were obsessed with these idols, these false gods. They were captivated by them. And just like our neighbors are as well too. They're captivated by false gods, maybe different types of gods these days, but other things that people put in their hearts to try to fill that place that the, the creator God, uh, the, the actual God that, that redeems, that love us, that exists, uh, is meant to fill in our lives. But instead they go after these false uh, representations, gods of our own making instead. And they're captivated by them in the sense of they are enamored by them, they're devoted to them, but also held captive by them as well. And in the same way that Paul wanted to uh, preach the true gospel message to these people, that they would come to know and understand Jesus Christ and turn from their, their empty ways and turn to him for what they really needed, uh, he communicated that things to them that we're going to see. And we also want our neighbors and people that are around us and family members uh, to know Jesus Christ in the same way. And this passage is especially helpful realizing that uh, we also now live in a society where most people do not share the same background uh, views, background knowledge. That maybe there was a time in America where you could assume that people had a, at least a basic Sunday school understanding of God and the world and even knowing who Jesus Christ was with the Bible. But now we live in a world where uh, more and more it is the truth that most people do not have a, a biblical worldview that they're starting from. And so we need to take that into account as we try to communicate God's truth to them effectively. We need to start where they're at. And we're going to see that Paul is going to, he's going to look for a point of contact that he has that he can find with them and use this as a bridge with his audience, uh, starting with this point of contact and then moving to correct their wrong thinking with biblical truth. And the same way, that's what we need to do with people around us. If we want to be used as God's instrument to help other people to come to know Christ and receive the same forgiveness that we have received, we need to understand what is their thinking, what are things that uh, are, are confused uh, in their mind so that we can help them to, to put the pieces into place better so that the gospel message will make sense. All the while praying for them because we have to always keep in mind that this is not just about having some perfect rhetorical strategy and just thinking if we can just say the right words that it's going to guarantee that they're going to turn to Christ and, and receive forgiveness. God needs to do a work in their heart. So we do what we can do and we pray for God to work and turn their heart because without that happening, it's just not going to happen. But we want them to understand truth about God and to help them to move to understand God clearly and correctly and not just to have head knowledge, but to turn to Jesus Christ. So I think in this message, there's kind of two ways of application from this. One is if you are a believer, there are things that we're going to learn in this message about how you can communicate better to the non-Christians around you or people that maybe think they're Christians but what they think is Christianity is, is really muddled and confused. But also this passage gives us some really solid biblical truth, very clear statements about what is not true but what is true. And so all of us, we need to keep having our minds uh, reformatted uh, by God's word. You're looking for the errors in our, in our thinking and replacing it with God's truth. And then asking, if these things are true, how does this also change how we live? Because it's not just about having a bunch of correct doctrine in our head. This needs to translate into how we live our lives as well. So let's read the passage. The verses we're going to be looking at especially today are 22 through 29. But I want to start with what we had last week to give us the context here. So Acts 17, we're going to start with verse 16. So, now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, this is in Greece, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace, that's the agora, 
every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. They had different worldviews. And some says, what does this babbler wish to say? Another says he seems to be preaching of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they may have been so confused that they thought that he was preaching one God named Jesus and another God called the resurrection because they just they didn't understand this. That could be what's even going on here. Uh, just that degree of confusion. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. That was last week. This is the section for today. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. We'll continue with the rest of it next time, but there's plenty for us to think about here. So Paul is in Athens. He started in what's called the, the Agora, and this is the, uh, the marketplace and he, at first he was talking with some of the Jews. He would go in the synagogue there and he talked with them with one way, but then he would go in the marketplace because that's, that's where the people were and was engaging in conversation and doing this for just many days. And he got their attention and then it says they brought him to the Areopagus. And the Areopagus uh, was the name of a hill that was located near where the Agora was. And um, the legend was that the god Ares at one point was put on trial for murder up on uh, this, this hill called the Areopagus. That's why it's called Mars Hill. Ares is Mars, uh, the, the, the god of war. And the council of the city would meet up there as well later on. Uh, now, in Paul's day, they might not have been meeting up on this actual kind of rock on this hill. They might have been meeting in what's called the Royal Stoa, which was in the Agora. Uh, but still, you had the, um, the Areopagus there, and possibly they were meeting there informally. Sometimes they would still meet there for uh, very important uh, cases or, or, or murder. Uh, it doesn't seem like Paul was being arrested at this point. They just wanted him to present more, and he used this as an opportunity. Uh, last week I showed a little bit of video that I had from a trip that we took out to Greece this past summer, and we focus on the, the Agora, and notice from there that the um, Areopagus was up, uh, kind of on the hill, and I have a little more video for you uh, this morning. And so we're going to start in the Agora and take a look a little bit more at the, the Areopagus, so that hopefully you can, we can visualize this a little bit better and put ourselves as much as we can like we're there. Uh, with, with Paul, with these people, with everything that we see that's around there. And I think it really sheds light on the message that Paul is making to the people in Athens. So, we'll play this. So this here, yeah, is the Agora. And from the Agora, you can look up, and we, I noticed this hill, and with people on it, tourists, and this was uh, 
Mars Hill or the Areopagus. This is a view from the other side looking at this. And uh, if you go up from the back, and they have st you know, steps now and different things so you can get up on the rock to view it. There's actually a tablet on the one side uh, where uh, it has the complete message from the Apostle Paul that we're reading today that's in Greek uh, posted on the side there. So this is the view from up there. You see the, the whole city of uh, Athens. And you see temples in uh, the background even further up the hill. That's the, the Acropolis. So this is from the Areopagus from Mars. So looking down on the Agora, on the marketplace that's uh, down there. So Paul would have uh, met down there and either they brought him to a place where the, the council called the Areopagus was meeting or possibly up on the hill as well. And this is my wife. There's the two of us, we're standing on the, the Areopagus. In the background behind us, you see this is the Acropolis. And the Acropolis literally means high city. And this is where they had all the, big, the biggest temples that they had, uh, these magnificent structures. Uh, they're ruins now, but a lot of them still stand there uh, to the various gods. Uh, Nike, Athena, this is the Parthenon. Uh, the, famous temple that's up there as part of the Acropolis. And this last part is looking down from the Acropolis onto the Areopagus, onto Mars Hill. I have that view there. So thinking about this, as I was reading this passage, I thought, we, we can't just think about this from uh, you know, us today. It is speaking to us. It is God's word. But we put ourselves in the mindset of Paul talking to the people in Athens uh, thinking about the fact that he's, he's there in this context and everything that he's seeing, I think it puts even just a different light on what he is communicating and what the people around him are seeing. But let's look at the first part of this. And I think in the outline, I want to think about what does this teach us about how we can do evangelism, especially with people, well, with anyone, but especially people that are starting in a place that may be pretty far off. And one thing that we notice from verses 22 to 23 is that to explain the message of salvation, we can start with what a person already understands about God. In fact, there's a sense where we always need to do this, to find where is the starting place. And it might be, it's going to be different depending who you're talking to. So looking back at this passage, seeing what it says, now, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Remember he had been there, I mean, it was pretty obvious. There's all these temples that are all over the place. And even more idols that are all around. Uh, now most of them aren't there anymore, but it said that back in uh, ancient times, there were literally more idols than people in the city of Athens. So definitely they had a sense that there was more to this world, that there were uh, gods. They didn't understand correct things about God, but they understood there was something more. And so acknowledge that, and, hey, you're very religious. Um, you know, the way that you communicate to someone is going to be different uh, depending if they are pretending that there, there is no God or if at least they acknowledge that there is something more in this world. There's something beyond this world. You could have a different kind of starting place with them. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And he said, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Uh, the word unknown there is a word that we get agnostic from, meaning without knowledge. So they had, you know, uh, altars and idols set up to all these gods, but they thought, well, if there's one we miss, let's, let's have a safety, uh, you know, idol here that this can be directed towards, you know, a, a god if we don't know who this is. And so Paul took that as an opportunity to say, well, I'll tell you who this God is. Uh, not that he was saying the other gods are real, but he's like, there is a God that you don't know about. I am here to proclaim him to you, to proclaim this unknown God to you. So he was starting with kind of where they were at and what they understood, but then taking them to what they didn't understand and what they needed to have corrected in their thinking. Altered to the unknown God. 
says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So before we move on into what he proclaims about God, because that's going to be in the next few verses, I think there really are some lessons that we can draw from this. And I hope that you have people that you can think about in your life that need to know the Lord. Uh, whether it's, well, even your children, other relatives, neighbors, people in the workplace. Uh, there are people around you that God wants to use you to reach into their lives and help them to know the Lord God that saved you, that changed your life, and is the only hope, not just for you, but for, for them as well. And to do it with, with, with kindness, with conviction. Uh, we're not going to be saying everything there is to say about evangelism here in this message. Uh, but we also, we need to be tactful. We need to be, uh, you know, do it in a way that is, is persuasive. And part of persuasion is not just the words we say, but it's also the attitude in which we come across to them. So again, be praying through this whole thing. Be praying for their hearts, but also be praying for your heart that you can present this in a way that is, that, is, that is winsome and that is actually helpful to them, that you can be a good instrument to the Lord. But let me give you just kind of four things before we kind of move on from this. And I think these are embedded in what Paul is doing. One is where people are at determines where you need to start. What I mean, where they're at in their, their knowledge, their understanding of the Lord. We see here in Acts 17, Paul taking a different approach uh, than he took when he was ministering to people with a Jewish background. If you compare the evangelism that happens in Acts 2 to Acts 17, you see different approaches because he has a different audience that is in mind. And so in Acts 2, he's talking to people that they, they understood the Old Testament. Uh, they had that type of background. And he could start with that background knowledge. They knew about God. They knew he was holy. He could even point to, to prophecies that they already understood and say, Jesus is the, the fulfillment of this. So they're at a, a different place. But with the people in uh, Athens, they didn't have that background knowledge. And so he, had to, he did a different approach to, to get their hearing and to help them understand. Now, he wasn't just going to, I'm just going to agree with everything that you say. No, he was going to, you know, find that starting point, but then help them along. And so we need to be doing that too. We need to learn where are the people, whoever you're ministering to, uh, help them so that we can uh, move them along, you know, correctly. And, you know, just like, okay, in a, in a football game, you know, it's going to be different whether uh, you are in the red zone and you could score very quickly or whether you're way down at the other end of the field. And maybe society in America used to be a little bit more like you're, you're in the red zone. That means, uh, for those of you that aren't football people, you know, that you're within like, you're like 20 yards, you're close to scoring and you could maybe score in one play because people had more of a background knowledge. They even knew, they knew who Jesus was. They knew the Bible. They knew, had an okay understanding of God. And a lot of times they even knew that they were sinners. A lot of times they didn't want God because they knew that they were sinners and they were afraid. But you could explain that Jesus came for sinners, uh, that he died uh, not for perfect people, but for people that, that have sinned. And therefore, if you realize you're a sinner, you're so much closer. And that to understanding this and uh, embracing Jesus Christ, turning to him as Savior and receiving that forgiveness. But now most of society, it's like they're way down at the other end of the field. Someone's like, I think they're playing a different sport, okay? And they don't understand the Lord. They don't have the background knowledge. Uh, sin, what, is, what does that mean? They don't even understand what that is. Because if you don't understand who God is, then how does sin even make sense? Why are we accountable to some space genie in the sky that's supposedly telling us what to do? That sounds more like the, this, a supervillain in a movie, if that's what their view of God is. And so we need to help them to, to uh, put the puzzle pieces together to uh, change their thinking so the gospel makes sense. And this means sometimes it's going to take time to do that because there's a lot of work to do. Sometimes God can work rapidly. He can. But a lot of times it takes time to do this. And so you're going to explain the gospel message differently um, if you're explaining it to a, 
you would explain it differently to a child. You would put it in different terms that they can understand. Sometimes it's easier with a child because they're a little bit more of a blank slate. They haven't learned all kinds of things that you need to deconstruct first, you know, bad theology that you need to take apart. So children's ministry is very, very valuable. I hope your parents, you're ministering to your kids now that you're teaching them well, that you're putting them uh, in places where uh, other people can help you with that task and they can, can learn in Sunday school and explorers in, in youth group and different things. But also this means that uh, just the same way that Paul explained it differently to, to Hebrews as to the, the Greeks, you know, if you have a coworker that you're trying to reach with Christ, for example, it's going to be different depending on their background. Do they have a basic Sunday school background? You're going to be able to start in a different place. More and more people, they don't have that at all. And the stuff they picked up from the world and society around them, it is a mishmash of disjointed things. They may have picked up some really bad philosophies. If you have someone that maybe they were in a, a false religion, a cult, a different... Whatever their background is, is going to determine where you need to start to help them out the best. Uh, so we need to be sensitive to their context. And we can tailor the presentation of the gospel for your audience. That's something we should do. Now, that doesn't mean changing the gospel. There's only one gospel message. But how you explain it can and often should be adjusted so that you're helping them to understand it. Where you start with the gospel message might change depending where they're at, but the goal where you're leading them to is always the same. It's helping them understand that, that Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer. He is the one and the only one that came so that they can be reconciled with the God that made them through his perfect life and death on the cross in their place. So along with this, don't assume your neighbor has, a sol has solid Christian background beliefs. Don't assume they have uh, the same knowledge. When they say the word God even, don't assume that you and they mean the same thing. You know, the Athenians, they would talk about gods. They meant something very different than what Paul meant when he said God. And so don't assume people say, oh, I believe in God, that they believe in God of the Bible God, God that actually exists God. And like Paul is going to do, you might have to help them and say, okay, God is not this. That is not who God is. He has revealed himself, and, and this is who God is. Help them in that process. When people say Jesus even, don't assume that the Jesus that they're talking about uh, has anything to do with the Jesus that is revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament and the Old Testament pointing to him as well. Uh, the, the Jesus that actually exists. People have like, my Jesus wouldn't do this. If you start hearing people talk about my Jesus, is this uh, actual Bible Jesus? Actual existed, came down Jesus? Or is this my imagination Jesus? So people use words. You have to find out what do they mean by these things. And we need to clear up wrong conceptions, wrong theology. People say, well, I'm not a theologian. My neighbor's not a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. Theology is just what you believe about God. And you're either a good theologian, if it's being informed by God's revelation in Scripture, or you're a poor theologian. You have weird, wrong beliefs about God. And that's what Paul is helping them to do here. One of the things that we need to do with this, this is such a helpful thing, is ask questions to people. Have conversations. And that's why in the verses that we looked at last time, Paul was having lots of conversations with the people in Athens before this happened. So he was learning about their worldview. I mean, he probably knew a bunch of it. He knew what the Stoics believed in the Epicureans. Uh, but when you talk to someone, uh, sometimes it doesn't help to just launch in with a one-size-fits-all uh, gospel presentation, you know, that you're going to clock it in and explain it in, in 10 minutes and it's all good. Sometimes you need to take time to really listen to them, to uh, hear from them, to ask questions, to read between the lines so that you can really understand where they're at. Uh, even things that sometimes we, we say, um, okay, here's, sometimes 
one of the things that people need to understand in order to come to Christ is that they're a sinner. Now, when somebody says, yeah, I sin, do they recognize that sin is actually, it's rebellion against a, the personal God that made them? Or is it just breaking some rules that nobody cares about? Is their mindset actually just, well, no one's perfect, but who cares? None of us are perfect. God doesn't care. Or do they realize that this is a, is a serious thing? Do they understand, um, let's say later in the conversation, you know, sometimes people talk about, well, I, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Well, what do you mean by that? Uh, does that mean, I've talked to people and the more I ask them questions and, and listen, you got to listen, realize, oh, you realize that your life was a mess and you needed a change. You asked Jesus into your heart to help you to be a better person and to, to live a better life, to you know, cling to this higher power and to have a fresh start. And I realized that, that person, they're say, they think that they asked Jesus into their life uh, to help them to be a better person. They're still clinging to their good works for salvation, not realizing that, no, uh, you need to trust Jesus Christ alone as the one that, that bore the penalty of your sin when he went to the cross in the place of sinners. So we need to listen to them, ask questions. That's also a way to get a hearing with people. If you just come to people and like, this is what I believe, and you have to uh, you know, jam it down their throat, they're going to feel like it's jammed down their throat oftentimes. They're not going to want to listen to you. But if you're asking them questions, you get them talking. Now, they might say, well, I believe that God is like this, or I believe there is no God. And no, a follow-up question you can ask them is, well, how did you come to that conclusion? And oftentimes, you're going to find out that at that point, they realize, well, it's just, my opinion, this is what I think. And then in the right time, you can explain to them and, and say, well, this is what I believe because the Bible teaches this, and you can have a conversation. But you're also going to be picking up things from them, so you're going to know what are the issues that you need to address in their life to straighten out. So asking questions is a great way, and listening, okay, not just charging in with your presentation, you have to spend time with them. You have to, to listen to understand. And there's often something from their world that you can use as a bridge to spiritual truth. So we wonder, how do we get that conversation going with an unbeliever? You know, Paul saw that they're full of idols, and he saw they had this altar, this unknown God, and he uses an opportunity to talk to them and say, well, you obviously believe in religious things, and you obviously realize that there's something you don't know, and I'm going to proclaim this to you. And so there's different things that we can use. You have to be praying about it, thinking about it, having your eyes open, so that you can find those opportunities to help people to, to be thinking about God, to put God on their radar. There are things that are areas of um, commonality that we can use to, to connect with them. I just, I brainstormed a, a quick list. People have, these are things, not just, there can be wrong things, okay? It's not just like, uh, do you want to be healthy and wealthy? Here, come to God as your magic genie. I mean, that's a messed up view that the prosperity gospel uses. But there are real needs that people have the real needs that they might not realize are their actual needs, but there are their deeper needs that are on the inside, not just symptoms or wants. But um, here's just kind of a list. Uh, people have a longing for purpose. And there's things that you can come up with as people are struggling with their life, whether they're young or in the middle or whatever, is there purpose in life? And by explaining to them the biblical story, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the future. You can talk about how life actually does have purpose because we're not an accident. We're here created by God. There's a longing for permanence that we have. That's why people want to do something that's going to outlast them. And if this world is all there is, there's nothing permanent. You know, you're going to be forgotten very quickly. And eventually, uh, you know, the sun explodes, we're all gone, no one's going to remember, and it will not matter what you did in this life if there is no God. If God exists, then everything is permanent. Your soul is permanent, you are permanent, uh, and everything you do is remembered forever by God, and everything matters. There's a fear of death. That's just the truth. 
That's why sometimes, you know, funerals or different places are an opportunity to talk to people because eternal things are on their radar. But people do have a fear of death. And if you know the Lord, then you know something that changes death for you. And other people would be glad to know about that. Other things as well, there's beauty in this world, the natural world that you can use to help point people to the Lord. Uh, Romans 1 talks about how God created this world and, and creation does point to the Lord. Pain and struggles in this life, as we go through them, other people go through them, you can use those as a bridge to help them to think about spiritual things and to explain it. Uh, biblical worldview, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. It makes sense of why there is pain and suffering in this life. A lot of people in this world right now really care about justice. And they may view it in a different way, but we all have a longing in our heart for true justice. We can ask them questions like, where does justice actually come from? How can you really have a conception of justice uh, if there is no God? But if God exists, there is ultimate justice. And eventually this world will be brought right one day. Along with that, a lot of people care about rights. And so you have conversations about rights, and you can ask a question like, where do you think rights actually come from? Is it just, are they granted by the government? Is it a vote? Or are there rights that actually uh, are there regardless of how people vote, regardless what a government says? And we know that there's a true source for things that are actually rights, and it's because God exists. So it's try, finding something that is that longing that is embedded in their hearts because they're created by God. And so those things are in there and we can look for those things and use those as bridges to explain the gospel message to them. The problems of this world, worry, uncertainty, conscience. People want to stay away from God because their conscience bothers them especially when they measure themselves against God's standards, against his law. But this is a great tool, and Romans 2 talks about this, and you can use this to help them to realize that uh, that feeling of guilt is not just some psychological problem to get rid of. It is there to let them know there is a real problem. And in the same way that pain for a physical body lets us know that there's a problem, take your hand out of the fire, The guilt that we have in our heart is designed by God to show us that there is a spiritual problem and we need to change where we're at and we need to come to the one that can actually take away that guilt. The ultimate point of contact is the God consciousness that we all share because we're all created in the image of God. And that's where all these things that I just mentioned, eventually you can trace them back to the fact that God created us in his image And deep down, there are no atheists. At the core, everyone knows that God is there. Roman 1 talks about this. Uh, The fool says in his heart, there is no God in the Old Testament. Tries to deny. Uh, Romans 1 says we try to suppress that knowledge, but it's there. And that's why some of the most fiery atheists uh, spend a lot of time suppressing the knowledge of God because deep down they know there's a God, they just don't like it. But deep down, everyone knows that God is there. And so we can use that. We help them to acknowledge that God consciousness that they have. It's flawed because of sin. And therefore, we need to use Scripture to help them to to straighten out what they do know and to come to Christ. And that's what Paul is doing. So we need to connect with them first, but then we need to correct them. So connect and then correct And that's what Paul is doing now as he starts to talk to them. So first, if we're thinking about this as far as evangelism, start with what they already understand, start with where they're at, then help them correct what they don't understand about God. When I say correct, sometimes that has bad connotations, you're here to correct me. But we want to, with grace, with compassion, with kindness, help them to change their thinking from what is poor theology, what is wrong, to what God actually presents in his word. We connect with them and then correct. Moving from what they know to what they don't know. From what they do accept, at least deep down, to what they don't. 
And so we're moving from what might be, I guess, a kind of common ground, uh, but we don't just stay there. We need to move to what's called antithesis, which means that we're, we're making a contrast, teaching them with kindness, this is where you're wrong and this is what God says is, is correct. And so this is what we're going to see Paul doing uh, in this passage as he moves ahead. He's also going to be moving from what is just vague about God to getting more specific about who God actually is. Because just this vague, fuzzy notion of God isn't enough. That doesn't save. They have to, it has to be clarified to the true God that exists in the Bible and that ultimately is Jesus Christ. So let's spend some time trying to walk through this, Paul's message here. So Paul starts verse 24. And he says to them, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so, again, think of where Paul is right now. That he is, whether he's on the hill or he's in the agora, they are surrounded by all of these different temples. Uh, some of the things that are the ultimate pride in the world that they lived in, these are, they're impressive now. But think of how, what a big deal this was back then. And they're probably, they made these, these houses for the gods uh, so they could live in it and, and worship it. And Paul is, is pointing to that, still using the context that he's in, but he's turning it around, saying this is not how God is. The actual God that exists, he does not live in temples made by human beings. So he's going to have something that he says, this is incorrect. Now he's moving them to what is correct instead. And we need to do that. You know, we're putting a new sign out there. And right now there's a, a pile of rocks because we had to deconstruct the old. You can't just put the new sign on top of the other one. So he's deconstructing, here's your false belief, and let me replace it with what is actually correct according to what God has revealed. So what he's telling them is God doesn't live in temples that we make. God is the creator of everything. And that's how they need to think instead. Not that we make these temples for God, it's all up to us. He is the one that has made everything. So he's deconstructing their bad theology. You know, the Epicureans, some of those philosophers, they believe that matter was eternal. They believe that just the world has always existed. And so Paul is saying, I'm giving you something that's different, a contrast. He's saying the world didn't always exist. It was brought into existence at a point in time and that it is from God. He is the one responsible for this. The Stoics, they believe that everything was a part of God and therefore always existed. So he's also telling them something that is going to be different from what they believed. Uh, that God is creator, everything comes from him and comes with a beginning. God cannot be contained in a building no matter how big and impressive it is. So we see that at verse 24. We move on to uh, verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So first it says, you know, God is the creator. And now it's saying God is the one that provides. He is the one that provides us everything that we have. God doesn't need us to serve him. God is the one that provides to us everything that we need. So if some have this view of the gods that, you know, we have to serve them and we have to do our sacrifices to the gods because, uh, you know, the gods, they need us. And if we didn't worship them, if we didn't provide sacrifices to these, uh, you know, Greek gods, they would, just, they would just wither. They would get weak and they would shrivel up and die. And it's up to us to keep them going, to serve them well. They need us. We need to make sure, let me say this to, to, to Christians here as well too, that we don't fall into that trap of thinking that God needs us, that he depends on us. I once heard a message by John Piper that really stuck to me, and he made a point, and he just said it like this. He said, tell people, don't serve God. I thought, wow, that's, uh, that's quite a thing to say. Don't serve God. So I'll do that. 
It was a book to pastors. He said, tell people don't serve God. So I'm going to tell you, don't serve God. In the sense where you think God needs you. Of course, we are supposed to serve God. We're called to. If you come to church and it's just, what can God give me? What's in it for me? That's messed up. But it's also messed up to, to move from that to, well, it shouldn't just be about what's in it for me, but it's about what can I do for God? Poor, weak God who needs me to take care of his needs. What would God do without me? How could he survive? How could he make it without me? Better pat me on the back. You know, I'm here to help out God. But we slip into that mindset and think God just couldn't do it without us. So, of course, we are to serve him. <laughs> the, the, the answer is to realize we serve him with the strength and energy he gives us. We're just bouncing it back to him. We're tools in his hand. Uh, but, yeah, don't serve God in the sense that he needs you. So he's correcting, uh, Paul is correcting their bad theology that they thought the gods need them. We need to have our theology corrected too. God doesn't need us. He wants to work through you. He oftentimes, most often uses us as his instruments in this world, but he can also work despite you. He can also work apart from you. He doesn't need us. He is independent. God has no needs. He is self-sufficient. In theology, they call this the aseity of God. You know, God doesn't have needs. We get to serve him. We're called to serve him. We don't need to. Psalm 50, 9 through 12. The Lord says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. So again, the Epicureans, you know, they thought God is absent. Paul's saying, no, he's not absent. He's the life giver. He gives us our lives. The Stoics thought God is everything. And Paul's saying, no, God is distinct. By the way, I want to ask you, if it is true that God gives us our life and breath and everything, what do you owe God then? Is it okay to just ignore him? To just move on with life? To give ourselves credit for our hard work? Or do we owe him thanks and gratitude every moment? because every good thing is from him. And even the, the bread that you put on the table is there because he made it so that there can be bread and he gave you the strength to do your job, to get the money to buy bread, just all these different things. Everything is ultimately from him. We owe him and it's sin that we ignore him. Verse 26 and 27. So you see in all this, Paul is taking what they believe, and he's giving a contrast to this, 26 and 27, um, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. I guess a way that we could maybe summarize what he's saying is God made all of mankind. He put us in different places on earth, but made us all to seek and to find him. The Athenians prided themselves that supposedly they just sprung from the soil there in their native land. They say, no, that didn't happen. You didn't spring from the soil. And I'll tell you as well, too, you didn't come from an amoeba or a monkey or a bunch of chemicals that just got knocked together in some soupy ocean back in the day. That you're here because God made you. And because God made you, he's the author of your life, and it also means that he is, deserves to be Lord and Master of your life, too. And we have a certain allegiance to him that wouldn't be true if he was just, yeah, a space genie out in, out in space. No, he designed you, he made you, and he made you for purpose. And the purpose that he made you ultimately is to bring him glory by knowing him and treasuring him. He made you for relationship with him. He made you to have a personal relationship with him. And that's why sin is such a bad thing because it severs, it breaks that relationship. Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship, but since they rebelled, we come into this world separated from him. We need reconciliation with God. And when we have unforgiven sin in our lives, that's what, what keeps us apart from him. That's why Jesus came to solve that problem of unforgiven sin, dying on the cross to pay for our sin. 
So when you turn to Jesus, you have that problem taken care of and your Bible says reconciled to him. So God is the one that, that made us. He made us for him to have a personal relationship. A lot of truth in, in these verses. There is one human race. Uh, we all come from a, a literal Adam one day. Uh, if we go back far enough, and God has providentially arranged our lives and the structures of our lives. People live in different places on this world, but he made us all for one common thing, to, to come and to, to know him. Not that everyone does, but he invites and wants everyone to come and to know him. When it says, um, made us for him to, to seek and to find him, it says uh, that they may feel their way towards him. That word in, in Greek is used of like groping in the dark. And in uh, Homer's uh, The Odyssey, there's a part where Odysseus, he, he blinds the cyclops. And the cyclops is like groping around trying to find Odysseus to kill him. And that's the same word that's used here. So without, um, you know, scripture to shed light, it's like we, we're, you know, groping around in the dark trying to find God. It's like trying to find a, a door in the dark. Uh, but when we have God's revelation, scripture, it's like the lights come on. Now we can see where it is. So God has made us for him to find him to be reconciled to him. That's what God has made you for as well, too. Notice as well, Paul is starting here in evangelism with the doctrine of God and the doctrine of humanity. And so often in our world today, it is a mistake just to go to, well, you know, sin in the cross. These things aren't going to make sense to your neighbors and to those around us unless they can have a, at least a decent understanding of God and humanity. That doesn't mean they have to have everything perfect in their mind, but sin is not going to make sense unless you realize the God that we are accountable to and that he is the one that made us. So I, Genesis, why do you think we spent so long in Genesis 1 and Genesis 1, 2, and 3? It's foundational for our Christian worldview, God and humanity. Matthew 27, going on with verse 27. that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For now he's quoting some, uh, you know, pagans, you know, that they knew. And basically, he's not saying that what they say is scriptural or everything they wrote is true. But he, I think what he's saying is, at least there's a little bit. They have a grain of truth here. And he's going to use that uh, to help them to realize actual spiritual truth. He says, he's not far from us, for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. And these are from uh, Epimenides and Aratus. Uh, that part doesn't necessarily, you need to know, but he's using uh, some things where they got a glimmer that's right, a lot that's wrong about it, but a little bit, and saying, I'm going to point you to the ultimate truth through this. But through these things, we also see he's correcting them that God is distinct from you, but not far from you. Remember, some of their philosophers believed that, well, the Epicureans that he mentioned, that uh, uh, God, they were the gods, but they weren't involved in life. They were way out there and they didn't care. There are a lot of people in America uh, that are what's called deists, or at least functionally deists. Yeah, there must be a God, and he must have had to create the world somehow, and uh, but, you know, he's not day-to-day -day involved in life. He's off in the distance. You know, maybe I'll call him up if I really run into trouble, but he doesn't need to be part of my day-to-day -day life. And so uh, we have that view that God is, God is far from us. He's distant and removed. There's others that, like the Stoics, believe that God is everything and everywhere, and everything is God, and you are God. And so what Paul is doing, notice he's correcting both of those. On one hand, you are not God. God is distinct from you. But also, uh, God is not far and removed. And so we, as Christians, we believe both those things. God is here. He's present among us because God is everywhere, but he's not us. And the created world and us, we are distinct from God. We are not God. You're not God, but God is not distant from you. And you can't separate yourself from him. God is not independent of, we are not independent of God. We are utterly dependent 
on him. And we are his offspring. We are from God. That's where he gets into the last point that we'll hit on today. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's getting back to all these idols and saying it's not like that. You know, if we are his offspring, then that means that we are like him, that these uh, idols and crafted, that's not what God is like. God is not formed by our imagination. And people today, a lot of times, if they say God, they might have an idol in mind, something that they have crafted and make. Maybe not out of gold, but maybe out of their imagination. And if you find yourself saying, well, my God, you know, that view, it's like, well, did God make you or did you make him in your mind? We don't all get a custom God. If God exists, he is who he is. And it is up to him to tell us who he is and for us to accept who he says he is. He doesn't put it up to a vote. He doesn't leave it up to your opinion to be what he is like. He is who he is. So it is not our imagination. You don't get to craft God. You get something better. You get the real God that actually exists. That's not a figment of your imagination. But that means he made us. He made us in his image, and we are responsible to him. And therefore, we need to turn. We need to repent of false thinking, of our rebellion against God, and do what it's going to tell us in the next verses. The time has come to repent, to turn to Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're realizing that you've been suppressing the knowledge of God or had wrong beliefs, I hope that this message from Scripture has helped you to change your thinking. And if you thought that God doesn't care about you and doesn't love you, the last thing I want you to remember is that he does. And he loves you so much that Jesus Christ came down and died on the cross. And if you turn to him as your Savior, you will find a Savior that is ready and willing to accept you and that has already paid the price for every sin that you have ever committed or you will ever commit because he loves you that much. You were made for him. Let's pray. Lord, we give you praise. We give you thanks. Lord, if there's anything in our minds, uh, whether we're not Christians or Christians here, that anything in our minds that doesn't match who you really are, we ask that you would use your word to change our thinking and that we would repent of any false views of you. Help us to, to deconstruct what is wrong in our minds and to have it reconstructed with your truth from your self-revelation to us. Thank you that you are a God that exists, that you are a God that, that speaks to us through your word and for who you are. You are holy and good and you are so full of love and grace and mercy that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to save sinners. May we all turn to you. May each person here turn to you, Lord God, and receive what only you can give, forgiveness, because the God-man Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. In his name we pray, amen.